Well, that's exciting. It's Christmas, and Meredith received the gift of eternal life this morning in the cl- in our class. She was uh, kept telling us that I'm ex- I'm celebrating my spiritual baptism and my physical baptism. I was baptized in the spirit. Now I'm getting baptized in the water. So that's wonderful. Uh, she has more doctrinal understanding of baptism than many adults that I've talked to. So I'm very encouraged in that. Um, if you have your Bibles, be turning the book of Exodus. If you are a guest here, thank you for coming. Um, man, praise team, great job on the Christmas music. That was a good job and uh, did a good job of you know preparing our hearts to uh, really get ready for this Advent season of the Lord's first coming. And we look forward, as, uh, we look forward to his second coming as well. <clears throat> so give just a, a second here for the, the air to clear, so to speak. Um, I'm also getting my technology where it needs to be. All right, so if if you have your Bibles, we're in Exodus chapter 4. We've been in this sermon series, Getting Out of Egypt. Today we're going to talk about how God equips the called, how God equips the called. You've probably heard it said before that God doesn't, you know, um, call the equipped. He equips the called, and that is absolutely true. Uh, God needs our hearts to be willing and ready, but sometimes we give God some grief. Uh, when it comes to fulfilling that call, and that would be where Moses is at uh, at this time in Exodus chapter 4. By way of remembrance, if you want to go back and look at what we saw last week, um, <clears throat> we saw that uh, God assures the called, right? So we spent some time talking about how God gives us assurance of his call. Some need to be assured, of course, this morning of the call to salvation. Others need to be assured of their call to service and sanctification. But we saw that he assures our call uh, with his presence, his name, his command, his promise, his message, uh, judgment, and the last thing was blessing. And if you look at chapter 3, I told you to go to chapter 4. Uh, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, be turning to page 86 in one of those uh, paperbacks that are in the seat rack in front of you. And uh, Or if you're a guest, there should be one in the guest bag. Um, and uh, we'd appreciate you if you want <clears throat> to turn to that. And, and uh, you can pick it up in chapter 3, actually, in verse 19. Here's the promise. it's kind of a mixed blessing in verse 19 exodus chapter 3 says and i am sure that the king of egypt will not let you go no not by a mighty hand that's kind of discouraging but here's the good news he says and i will stretch out my hand and smite egypt with all my wonders which i will do in the midst thereof and after that he will let you go so he's going to let you go and i will give this people favor in the sight of the egyptians and it shall come to pass that when ye go ye shall not go empty But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. So the promise here is that they are going to have victory, right? And so there's encouragement in that. And so we saw that last week. But Moses had every reason at this point to be encouraged because God told him actually in verse 18 that they are going to hearken to your voice. And so not only are the Egyptians going <clears> to <throat> obviously hearken eventually, not initially, they're not going to want to do what you need, but, but he tells him in verse 18 that the, the children of Israel will hearken to his voice. And as we hit chapter 4, as you're going to see here in just a moment, the biggest concern that Moses has is the children of Israel, and rightly so, because they can be fairly cantankerous. And so um, Moses had every reason to believe God would keep his word, yet as we enter chapter 4, we see him trying to make excuses and try to get around his calling uh, to go to the children of Israel. So if you have your Bibles here, let's look at chapter 4 now, verses 1 through 9. That'll be our text this morning. 
as we as we look at this familiar story of Moses and the call of not only Moses now but the children of Israel to come out of the promised land. He says, and Moses answered and said, but behold, they will not believe me nor hearken unto thy, my voice, for they will say that the Lord hath not appeared unto thee. Now he says this in spite of what he just heard in verse eighteen of chapter three, verse two, and the Lord answers right, and the Lord said unto him, what is that in thine hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground, and, it, and he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, put forth thine hand, and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand, and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord God of, the, of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, hath appeared unto thee. And the Lord said, furthermore unto him, Put now thine hand into thy bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. And he said, Put thine hand into thy bosom again. And he put his hand into his bosom again. And he plucked it out of his bosom. And behold, it was turned again as other flesh. As his other flesh, pardon me. Verse 8. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe thee, neither hearken to the voice of the first sign, that they will believe the voice of the latter sign. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe also these two signs, neither hearken unto thy voice, that thou shalt take of water of the river and pour it upon dry land, and the water which thou takest out of the river shall become blood upon the dry ground. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage this morning, I pray, Lord, that, uh, Lord, we celebrate Christmas this morning. We celebrate this baptism. We celebrate you we celebrate your the freedom that you give us from the bondage of this world from sin and death and yet lord so many are blind to that and so many of us that are free lord are, are like moses lord we um we're, we're afraid to go forward lord we lack the faith we're, we're afraid of rejection we're afraid of failure lord i pray god that this morning you would encourage the called uh, and help them understand lord that you will provide every tool they need to accomplish your mission and your power for your glory Lord, I, I need to hear this message. I'm sure everyone here needs to hear this message. And, Lord, I'm thankful for the opportunity for us just to gather around your word. At this moment, Lord, I pray, God, that you would speak to us. Lord, as you spoke to Moses face to face, Lord, I pray, God, that you would speak to us, your church, your bride. We're more intimate. We have the mind of Christ, Lord. You know us intimately, and we know your thoughts because you've given us your word and your spirit. I pray, God, that you would commune with us today in a special way and that you would be glorified. We just thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're already seated. Praise God. All right. So <clears throat> I always have you stand. Today I didn't. So uh, that's my bad. So God equips the called, right? So God, number one, if you're on your outline, God equips the called with what is in our hand. That's pretty obvious from the text, right? God equips the called from what's in, with, I'm sorry, with what is in our hand. What's in your hand this morning? Um, I know a lot of you, <clears throat> you carry these around, so you got those in your hand. This is the phone, by the way. Um, and so those are in our hand. Uh, so that's, uh, that's one of the things that's in our hand. But uh, what else is in your hand this morning? In Exodus chapter 4, he says, and. And so and is that conjunction, right? Uh, conjunction, junction, what's your function? It connects us to chapter 3 uh, for you Schoolhouse Rock fans. And we already read verses uh, 19 through 22 with, with that great promise. But in spite of that promise, and Moses, well, he answered and said, but behold, they will not believe me. Even though you just told me, they will believe me. They won't believe me, nor will they hearken to my voice, for they will say, 
I'm going to tell you, God, because I know more than you, this is what they're going to say. They're going to say, the Lord hath not appeared unto thee. They're not going to believe this. They're not going to believe that you and I have a relationship. Anybody ever feel that way? Like, you know, people just don't really, I mean, how could they think that I have a relationship with God? But But obviously they will because he said they would. And they did. Now, the, the, uh, the called should not replace assurance with excuses. And that's exactly what Moses, Moses was doing. He was, re, he was replacing the assurance that God gave him with excuses. And I hate to say, I think, I, I know I've done this before, and I'm sure that you have as well. There's times when it's very clear in the Bible where God, he calls us, he tells us, right, that this is what you need to do. I, you know, and then we come up with some excuses, like forsake not the assembling of yourselves together on the first day of the week, right? Uh, Hebrews ten uh, twenty five. So there's a there's a one, and we can like come up with excuses. Well, you know this or that. Well, those are excuses. Um, there's all kinds of great promises in the Bible, and we make excuses uh, sometimes not to fulfill them. There's commands in the Bible: go you therefore and teach all nations. Well, you know that's to somebody else. No, those are excuses. Right? Um, how about love thy neighbor as thyself? Well, you don't understand my neighbor. No, those are excuses. Right? Well, I could just go on with all, and we all face those excuses. But the truth of the matter is the reason that we, we make those excuses is we really don't believe what God says. Or we're not willing to submit, rather, to what God says, which is, is the case uh, with the Moses here. He's, he's wrestling with actually facing those Hebrews that had rejected him uh, so many years earlier, 40 years earlier. So in Exodus 4.1... It starts with the word and in the conjunction, of course, and it takes us back to the to that promise that ye will spoil the Egyptians. So in Exodus 3, God assured Moses with his presence, right? And he gave him his, uh, he said, look, this is my name. He gave him that command. He gave him the promises, even get, put the message in his mouth and the judgment that would come if it wasn't followed and the blessings that were going to come when it was obeyed. And the first thing he can fire off is but. But they won't believe me or hearken to my voice. You know, what Moses is saying is, is I have no influence in my people's lives, and I don't believe your promises are enough. That's really what he was saying. How many times have we approached God with, the, with his, uh, his direct will? Like we understand his direct will, but right after understanding it, we say but. And then we fill in the blank with excuses. Uh, you know, I'm not knowledgeable enough. You know, God, I know you want me to do this, but I just don't know enough about the Bible. Or I know, well, God, you want me to do that, but I'm not available enough. You know, I mean, my schedule is pretty tight. And, well, God, I know I need to do this, but, but you know, I'm not old enough. You know, that's for other people that are older than me. And, or, you know, God, you've called me to, to, to say this, but, you know, I'm not young enough anymore. I, I can't do that anymore. I, I don't, I'm too old. I can't, I can't do that anymore. I've already done that. Right? We can excuse after excuse after excuse. And so Moses turns into a prophet and tells God what his brethren will say. I mean, think about the audacity of that. I mean, he, he just told him in chapter 3 and verse 18, your brethren are going to hear you, no problem. And he says, but behold, right? They look at this, God. You've got to get a hold of this. This is what they're going to say. They will not believe me nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, the Lord hath not appeared unto thee. So Moses' reason is logical based in his personal experience with Jewish brothers, right? He knew that his Hebrew brothers weren't going to receive him in the, if it came to him the way he did the first time. But Moses' reason, even though it's logical, is based on a personal testimony with his brethren. And, and this is a great lesson uh, to the call of God. Your past doesn't define your future. 
It doesn't. God defines your future. Right? And God is telling him, this is your future. He's like, yeah, but it don't feel like it's going to be my future. But it doesn't matter how you feel. This is what God said. God is the one who defines our future. I'd say many of us today don't feel eternal. But it doesn't change the fact if you're born again, you are. You may not feel redeemed, but if you're saved, you are. You may not feel like a son of God, but if you're born again, you are a son of God. You may not feel holy this morning, but if you're saved, you're holy. So be holy as he's holy. That's a direct command, by the way. So let's not make excuses. But, 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 well, but what? But nothing. God says, hey, hey, Moses, I need you to work with me here. Point B. You know, God ignores Moses' excuses and asks Moses the first of five questions in the book of Exodus chapter 4. Sometimes God doesn't even merit our excuses with a response. Now, he just ignores it. He doesn't get into a dialogue with Moses over the children of Israel. He just stops. He just changes the subject. He does that a lot in the Bible. He just cuts to the chase. He says, hey, Moses, what is in your hand? What's in thine hand, Moses? What is in your hand? And of course, Moses was like, well, uh, you know, okay. So this is the 12th question posed in the book thus far, in the whole book of Exodus. But this is the first one God asked man in the book. I found that interesting. I, I hadn't seen that before. So this is the first question in Exodus to, to a man. Uh, there's other questions, but they're, they're among men. Now, God is questioning directly a man. He's saying, hey, Moses, what's in your hand? You know, God's better at telling us than asking us questions. If he's asking us a question, it's, like he doesn't, it's not like he doesn't know the answer, right? So if God's coming to you with a question, look out. Right, he knows the answer. So who is he wanting to? Who is he wanting to pick up on the answer? Yeah, it's us. He comes to Moses here with this question. First question in Exodus: Hey Moses, what's in your hand? You're about to go to school, son. This morning, God wants to ask all of us who make excuses for not serving God: What is in our hand? What's in our hand? What has God given us? What is available to us in our hand? I'm not talking about what you don't have, but what you do have. What is it that is in your possession? Now, point C, Moses finds the solution to his excuse right there in his hand. That's what this whole text is about, right? The solution to his excuse is right there in his hand, within his grasp. And, of course, we know it's a rod, point A, or point one. Moses isn't talking about Alex Rodriguez, right? So I know there's A-Rod, but this is A-Rod. I thought that was funny. Some of you guys will get that next week. But anyway, <clears throat> this is the shepherd's rod. Where I know, you know, this is the holiday season. It's the holiday season. Uh, you know, everyone's exhausted. <laughs> so we need some of that upbeat music, don't we? Uh, so, but this is, this is the rod, of course, the shepherd's rod. And, and he's, he's making a point that he can use anything that Moses yields to him, right? So the question is, is kind of twofold, right? What is in your hand? And then, of course, will you give it to God? What's in your hand and will you give it to God? Uh, God is making that point to Moses. So this morning, what's in your hand? And, what, and I'm, you don't need to tell me because I'm not asking the questions. All right, this is God's word. He's asking the question. So what's in our hand and, and are we willing to give it to God? Now, that's a scary question. Remember, you remember Abraham. What was in his hand, his son? 
Isaac. Was he willing to give it to God, give him to God? And of course he was. So point two, a rod is the symbol of Moses' vocation for the past 40 years. He's been herding sheep through the backside of the desert over there in Midian. So this, this rod, this thing in his hand was a tool, an instrument that was also his bread and butter, right? It was his vocation. And God's talking to a man. He knows how to talk to men, right? If you talk to a man, what's the first thing you want to ask him? Where do you work, right? That's what we do. If you talk to a woman, what do you ask? How are your kids, right? And so that's just how it works, right? And so uh, where do you work? How are your kids? He's a man. He says, hey, Moses. He doesn't say, hey, do you have any sons? He says, Moses, what's in your hand? Oh, a rod, right? Oh, yeah. Well, guess what? I'm going to use that rod, Moses. I'm going to take your vocation, and I'm going to teach you a lesson with it. Moses has now been this shepherd for um, uh, 40 years, but his forefathers have been shepherds for centuries. And in this rod is a symbol of, of what God has called him to be as well to the nation of Israel. He is now going to be a shepherd, right? His name was Moses. He was drawn out of the water. But now God's going to use that name to draw people out. And he's going to use that rod as an example of how Moses is going to draw God's people out. And he's literally going to lead them with that rod through the water. It's amazing how this is all put together by God. And so <clears throat> how could God use your your job to deliver people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? You're like, man, I just work at the tire shop or I just work at the at the trash company, or I just work here, I work there, I work at the at the at some business, or I own some business. Okay, great. How is God going to use what's in your hand to advance the kingdom of God, to draw people out of darkness into light? What's in your hand, and would you give it to him to allow him to do that? Is it just there for making money? Sure, it's there for making money. That's what you should do that. But it's not just there for making money. It's there actually to draw people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, because it's his whatever it is that is in your hand. He actually is the one that has provided it for you. Point three, a rod is the symbol of Moses' identification. The rod was now a normal and natural part of Moses' identity. It's who he was. And when people saw him, they didn't see an Egyptian any longer as they once did when he first arrived in Midian. They saw a shepherd. Remember at the beginning when we were introduced to him, he was identified by Jethro's daughters as an Egyptian. Now he's no longer identified as an Egyptian. He's a shepherd. Many a man knows that after a certain point of time, what you do really is what you become. Right? When you're a young man, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? What do you want to do? After several years go by, it's no longer what you want to do. Whatever you chose to do is what you become. You're a carpenter, you're a salesman, you're a business owner, you're a this, you're a that, you're a pastor, right? And so that's what you become. What you do is what you become. Now he's a shepherd. <clears throat> it's what he's become. It's his identity. And so, um, <clears throat> and so this was also the case with the disciples. This is why God uh, didn't call them out immediately as shepherds, right? Because God changes our identity. First, he invited them over to his house to see how, how things were going. He's like, hey, come on over, check it out. Come and see. And so he just initially knew them with a friendship. But then after that fellowship grew, they became disciples. And then he, he, he acquainted them with what they were already familiar with, like Moses. And he says, hey, why don't you just uh, go fishing for men? 
He spoke in terms that they could get a hold of. It was their vocation. It was the thing that they did up in Galilee all the time. Even the people who were were not fishermen understood how to go fishing, just like around here, right? I'm not a fisherman, but I can go fishing. Right? We know how to do that. He, he met them where they were at, and he took them where they were needing to go. He used what was in their hand to accomplish the mission. Where are you at in that relationship with Jesus? Maybe this morning some of you really aren't sold on Jesus, and he's, he's calling you to come and see. There's something different about Jesus Christ when he lives inside of these tabernacles, these, these bodies that we have. And if you're lost, there's, it's not me, it's not, it's, not something, it's not like we reform ourselves, we're not. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. The Word of God dwells in us richly, and it changes who we are from the inside out. That's attractive, right? It's very attractive because we know intuitively that we live in a world of darkness and sin, and, and right now it's just on blast, and, and it's just, you just keep being blasted with all this sin and darkness. And Man, you come to a, you, you, you come to a place where there's light, you, you go to work and there's people that are different. You go to school and there's people that are different. What is that? That's Jesus. Jesus is different, right? And so he draws you in and you just want to come and see. Check it out. We're getting ready to start our volleyball league in January, man. That's a great place to just invite people. Come and see. Check us out. A lot of people invite people to church. Come and see. Check us out. You can invite people to lunch. Come and see. Check me out. See if I'm the real thing. Right? That's what we do. We start with that friendship. But then there's also that, that place where God calls us to, to get saved and to follow like Meredith, get baptized and, and really be consecrated. And, and that fellowship deepens and we become a disciple. We begin to learn what it is that God's teaching us about who he is and what that means to us. And inevitably that will, that will engage us in doing the work of ministry. We learn, right? Then we begin to live it out. And the next thing you know, we love God so much we're giving our life to that thing. We become disciples and sent ones. That's what this church is all about is making disciples. Moses is going through this, this phase here and he's, his identity is as a shepherd and God is calling him out and he's, he's starting there and he's just saying, Moses, I know you don't feel like you're equipped, but I'm equipping the called. You've already been called. Now take what's in your hand and let's put it to use. Let's do something with it. Let's use what God has given you. Quit get making excuses. The most important thing that has changed in Moses' life is that he can be identified now as humble. It's really not about being a shepherd. It's about being humble. As we prepare to honor the birth of Christ this Christmas, we often think of the humble and lowly shepherds that tended their flocks by night. These shepherds were outcasts in Hebrew society, yet God took time to include them in the birth of the Lamb of God. Because Jesus could not have come to this earth at his first advent any more humbly than he did. Humility. What changed in Moses' life? It wasn't his vocation. It was, it all, well, let me back up. We run, how do you do that? All right, so it was his vocation, but it wasn't his vocation that changed him. It was his humility that changed him. He wasn't going to roll up on into Midian being the prince of the of the of the, uh, the the Egyptians, right? Being from Pharaoh's house, it didn't do him any good. He had to humble himself, and now we see a, a servant that's ready to be used, and he has what's in his hand. So, along with whatever's in your hand, I will say this: it's really not what's in your hand; it's what's in your heart. Are you humble? Are you humble enough to be used by God, or do you have to be humbled? Right? Moses had to be humbled before he was ready to be used. What did he have in his hand before? Well, before he had education. 
before he had status, before he had authority. I mean, he had a lot of things in his hand, and guess what? They were absolutely worthless until he was humble. Humility. That's why Peter says it in 1 Peter 5, right? Humble your, under, we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humble. Humility is what he needed. Now, point four. The rod is a symbol of Moses' transformation. This is closely related to his identification, but the rod symbolizes the transformation that occurred as he spent that time in the shepherd school of ministry in Midian. Now, the, the fifth thing that we see is the rod is a picture of authority. And I've already mentioned, right, what a contrast. At one point, he was an authority in Egypt. Now he's the authority over Jethro's herd of sheep. But you know what? That's all it takes. God doesn't need someone of worldly status. He's like, you know what? That rod there, it controls those sheep, doesn't it? It beats off the, 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 the wolves, right? The snakes or whatever's coming after the sheep, you, deal, you use that rod. It's, it's, it's authority. When you bring that rod out, those sheep... They, they go the other way, right? They know that you, you mean business. They ride nice staff, right? So the, the, that rod is, is used to protect. It's used to provide. It's, that rod's a symbol of authority. You know what, Moses? You may no longer be back in Egypt, but I just need you to be faithful with these sheep. <clears throat> and I'll use that. You know what? Some of you, maybe, I remember the man who led me to Christ, he, was a, he had to be humbled. At one time, he was in business, and he ran uh, engineering departments and did all this stuff, and Anyway, he got, he, he, God just broke him down. He couldn't find a job. He finally had to take this terrible job as a drafting instructor at a vocational school. I mean, just like, oh, you're going to kill me. And got, he gotten saved. Wasn't he supposed to get blessed? He felt like it was a curse. Salary's down, you know, not in the, not in the business. I mean, how am I going to stay in the Corvette club when I'm working at this kind of rate, you know? But you know what? One day, God brought him a little sheep along. And he started herding those sheep, and I'm one of them. Right? Sometimes God has to knock us down a few notches so we can really understand what it is he's calling us to do, which is tend to the sheep. Man, you might be a CEO, have a multi-mega, maybe the best thing in the world for, for that dude that lost those billions of dollars. Instead of sitting around in the Bahamas with his friends, being perverts, maybe they need to get busted down and go work in someone's children's ministry for a while. You probably don't know what I'm talking about. That there's some rich kid that just lost billions of dollars after the election with crypto. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how many people you command. It doesn't matter if you're a military general. Sometimes you just need to go and take some, watch some kids over here in the E-wing and tend to the sheep. That's what Moses did. He was humble. He didn't need to be the pastor. He was, he was over here tending to the sheep. He didn't need to command everything. He just needed to take care of what God had given him. As a matter of fact, he wasn't sure he could do it anymore. I mean, I'm getting old. I'm 80 years old, he's saying. I'm not sure this is for me anymore. I mean, come on, God. He was humble, and he was taking care of what God had given him. Moses' rod is mentioned 21 times in 20 verses in Exodus. He's told to cast it down. So it will turn into a serpent. And he is told to smite the waters with a rod, and they will turn to blood. He is told to stretch forth his rod <coughs> in his hands over the waters of, of uh, the Red Sea, and, and, they will, and they will open. Aaron is also commanded to smite the waters and stretch forth his rod. Moses stretched forth his rod between heaven and then stretched it toward the Egypt. His, he is to stretch it over the Red Sea and take it with him 
into the wilderness. This rod is going to be very, very useful in his hand from here on out. It's going to be a symbol of his authority. God's going to use that rod in a major way. In our society, you see a rod used to represent authority in everything from uh, drum majors to symphony directors to military. Uh, and, it's, and you know what? It's, it's just a, what all it is is a stick. It's, it's really not the stick, is it? it it's, it's the fact that it's in somebody's hand. You know what God needs? He needs some of us to stiffen up and be usable in his hand. We're the rod that God needs to use. He needs us to be usable. Now, uh, point six, the rod is a picture of comfort as well. Psalms 23, 4 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. We haven't talked about the staff, but the rod is what we're talking about now. That rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod is a picture of the Lord's correction. In Proverbs thirteen twenty four. the Bible says, He that spareth his rod hateth his son. Right? You refuse to discipline your children. You don't like them. You hate them. But he that loveth him chaseth him be times. That means you get on it quick. Right? You use the rod early. When I was, my kids were little, we had a little, like one of those little dowel rods. I'd get their hand, you know, they're going after something. Just kind of touch it. Now called DFS. They're, they can, you can vouch for, they can speak for themselves now. They're all right. <clears throat> In 30 years from now, wait, wait, I, wait till I tell you what I'm doing to them now. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I shouldn't even kid like that. That's probably foolish jesting in this world we live in today. Um, so anyway, but uh, yeah, you need to get on it quick. The rod. Uh, Proverbs ten thirteen. In the lips of him that hath understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him that is void of understanding. A rod is for the back of him that is void of understanding. When you're a knucklehead, you get the rod. Right? The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? To depart from evil is understanding. So when God says no, but you still go, right? What do you get? You get the rod. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. I remember when Sam was little one time, I told him not to touch my light fixture, and he touched it anyway. It burnt, didn't it? It was it's painful. Don't touch that, or what? You get the rod. You get the rod. Proverbs twenty nine fifteen: the rod and reproof... Give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. So we get the idea. Rod is part of our discipline process. God uses the rod to correct us. So God will use the rod. Now, point D, uh, give God what's in your hand. Well, that's, that's what we've been talking about, right? Give God what's in your hand. I know we've been talking about what's in your hand, but have you given it to him? Give God what's in your hand. Now, in verse 3, the text goes on to say, and he cast it to the ground. So he's used to having that rod in his hand, but now, oh, man, he's got he's to let go of it. It's one thing to have something in your hand. It's another thing to let go. Like, you know, money. It's one thing to have money in your hand. It's another thing to let go, right? God says, let go of what's in your hand. Now, you've got the rod, what's in your hand, now let go of it. Cast it to the ground. Cast it on the ground. And, of course, and he cast it on the ground. He was obedient. And it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it. And it became a rod in his hand. And 
that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, hath appeared unto thee. So Moses had been directing sheep with this rod for years, but it was not until he let go of it and cast it on the ground that it transformed into a miraculous tool for the Lord's work. You see, it's not enough to have something in your hand. You have to acknowledge that it's God's, right? God, what do you want me to do with it? He says, cast it to the ground. I'm casting it to the ground. Okay, God, boom, all of a sudden it turns into a serpent. Moses is like, whoa, what in the world was that? So we must often let go of the very familiar things and cast them to the ground. By the way, that's a place of low esteem, isn't it? We even use those terms today. You throw something on the ground. That's not, a, that's not a highly exalted place, a place in the dust, <clears throat> a place where we were created from, to see God quicken them into useful tools. That's how we get saved, isn't it? We, we literally kneel down. Well, I did. You could even lay down, prostrate before the Lord and say, Lord, take me. I'm like the dirt. I'm like the dust. You created me from the ground. Man, that's a great place to meet the Lord. You know what he'll do? He'll quicken you. He threw that stick on the ground, that rod on the ground, and it, it quickened into something it wasn't before. I know for me, guys, March 25th, 1987, I knelt down, and when I got up, I was different than I was before. I was changed from the inside out. You may not have realized it if you met me that day. As a matter of fact, some people didn't know I was changed. I remember how it hurt my feelings because I was changed and certain people's parents wouldn't let their kids hang out with me and stuff like that, you know, and I was like, man, they don't really know I'm changed enough, I guess. They wanted to see my profession. Not my, my, I'd profess Christ, but I don't think they believed it. And so uh, I took that to heart. It wasn't their fault. By the way, some of y'all need to understand that. I'm glad I mentioned, that wasn't in my notes. Maybe God needs to say this to somebody. You know, when you come out of the world... Some people aren't going to buy your change. They're not going to believe it. But don't be discouraged. You know, you, you own that. That's who you were. But just keep being who God saved you to be. In due time, it won't. there'll be no doubt about who God saved you to be, right? You just keep on trucking with Jesus, and God will take care of all that other stuff in due time. Just let it go. And, uh, you know, it's all good. So anyway, we must often let go of, of the very familiar things and cast them to the ground. So... I've always been inspired by Clarence Larkin's dispensational truth book and those charts that he makes. I don't know if you know who he is, but in the late 1800s, early 1900s, this, this guy, he's a draftsman from Pennsylvania, and he, he creates a, a dispensational, um, a, he writes a book on dispensations, and he illustrates it himself, and he's a draftsman by trade, and so this is, this is he does great theology too. But but the thing is that he's seeing, by the way, before 1918, before 1948, it's amazing all the things that he was clearly putting in place. It's just fascinating just to go through his books. God had given him insight to the Word of God. But he used his, his craft, what was in his hand, his drafting ability, to create all these charts. You know, he's getting Babel. He's laying out, the, uh, you know, uh, the image to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. He's laying out the seven dispensations. He's, he's getting his, his uh, by the way, you've got to be careful with his rendition of the book of Revelation. But anyway, but he lays it all out, you know, and, and he's in the, with the concepts for where he was at at that time. Outstanding, though, the imagery, the technology that he had in his hand, literally. And he put it all in writing. And, and man, those books, we still got them in our library today amazing a guy just took what was in his hand and he let god use that we're still looking at his work today 
you know, Moses fled when he cast down that, that rod. Who wouldn't flee, by the way? Some of you freaks that like snakes. I don't think you're right. I'm just saying. <laughs> I mean, if a snake, if this one of these cords turned into a snake, I'd, I'd want to act brave. But the truth is, I'd be scared. I don't like snakes. Moses didn't like snakes, and you shouldn't like snakes. I don't care if you like snakes. I'm just, I'm just kidding with you. But, but really, some of you guys, I don't know why you like snakes. I'm just saying. So Moses, he, he fled because, well, he's, he's, well, he's normal. <laughs> so uh, it's kind of funny in our office. You know, we get snakes in here from time to time. Don't tell anybody. And uh, we've got different layers. You kind of got the, where's Brianna? Is she in here tonight? Yeah, today? Yeah, because. I don't think you are scared of snakes. So she's that freak. You don't really like them, though. Yeah, she doesn't want to own one, so she's not that freaky, okay? So we have like the three levels of of snake fear in the church, right? So you got kind of like no fear. That's Brianna. She's like, oh, here's the snake. It's a rod in my hand, you know? And then there's like, uh, I'm like in the middle. Like, I'll stomp you out. I am not that scared of you, you know? But I don't want you in my office either, right? So, and then I won't say that there's other people in the office. I don't, and they're a little more scared of snakes, but I won't say who they are. So anyway, <laughs> snakes are scary, aren't they, Luke? <laughs> That's not fair. I didn't warn you. So anyway. We have a good time. Wait till he preaches next time. It'll be... <laughs> We're in trouble. But snakes, my point is, snakes are scary. Nobody wants to mess with a snake. And there's a reason that God's using a snake. Because a snake is significant. Because snakes, you honestly, you should be scared of snakes, right? Biblically, Satan is called a serpent. There's a reason that God makes us naturally like, hey, get away from me. Nobody wants to be bit by one of those things, even if they got the round eyes. I don't care. I don't want to be bit by it. Right? So there's a reason that Moses fled, because from his birth, he had learned from his mother uh, and his sister's care, uh, maybe his father, I don't know. We don't hear much about his dad. His dad was probably out working, but his mom and his sister, I'm sure, taught him as, as they had influence that, hey, there's a serpent. He's Satan. He hates our people. Right? And then he went into Pharaoh's house, and, and he was educated in Pharaoh's house. And, and so now he's in Pharaoh's house, and he's learning the Egyptians, as they taught that uh, Apophis, or Apep, was also the name of this uh, serpent in Egypt, the serpent god that fought with Ra over the order of the universe. The Egyptians believed that you know the sun god Ra was the creator, right? And he would, he would rotate around the earth and go to the underworld and then come back up every morning. You know, it was a new resurrection. But what was going on at night was that Ra was, was fighting the serpent god. And the serpent god was, was trying to keep the light out, right? So he, he understood that, the, that this, this, this serpent not only had significance, of course, to us who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it had significance to uh, the, the paganism in the Egyptian world as well. And so the Egyptians literally believed at night that, that this, this battle went on. And, of course, every, every day Ra would, be, uh, would, the, would come up and would win. But when it got cloudy or there was bad weather, they were like, oh, 
the snake god has, has, has had influence upon the weather. You know, we need to pray. We need to do whatever we got to do, cut ourselves, give sacrifice, whatever they did in the Egyptian pagan world. But they, they needed to see that, that Ra would win. They needed to help Ra out a little bit because the snake god had so much influence on their life. The Egyptians and the Jews who had, had been brought up in Egypt would have had a real fear of a serpent because it represented a real threat to the Egyptian world order. I mean, this serpent, it, it was a real threat to them. In their mind, this, this, this god of the serpent was a real threat to their order. And by the way, that was a big deal. They wanted everything decent and in order. Uh, because their God, um, the God of Ra, kept everything in order, and there was a couple other ones that did as well. And so uh, they saw this Apoph um, as a uh, as a God of chaos, and Ra was the God of creation and order. So you can imagine the significance of Moses when he, believing God, reached down and took this serpent by the tail, and it immediately transformed back into a rod. You know, <clears throat> who was who? Who has that kind of power over the serpent? Well, we know who does, God. And that's the, that's the story, right? God has control of this serpent. And it's an, interesting, it's an interesting picture that we see here. What an encouragement to Moses. But what a message that that will send to Pharaoh and to the children of Israel, most importantly. Because this, this story, by the way, this account is not about Israel or about the Egyptians. It's about the Hebrews. He's saying, hey, look, if they don't believe you, they'll believe this. And this sign isn't done in public, it's being done in private. Because it's really for Moses. Who has that kind of power over the serpent? God's saying, Moses, I do. You know who the serpent represents. That's why you're scared of him. Now reach down and grab him by the tail. I've got control. You need to trust me here. So God reveals, point two, the first sign gift in the scripture privately to Moses. The first sign in the, in the scripture was not performed publicly, but privately to Moses who was a Jew that needed convincing of his calling. And so for the Jews, we know in 1 Corinthians one twenty-two, the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. So Jews, by nature, uh, need a sign. And throughout the Bible, there's all these signs. We'll see many of them as we go forward in the book of Exodus. But it's clear from Exodus 4.5 here that it addresses the initial concern of Moses, Moses in Exodus 4.1. He tells Moses that, <clears throat> that the children of Israel, when they see this sign, they will believe the Lord God of their fathers, specifically the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to Moses. And all, all the signs showed to Pharaoh by Moses were as much for the benefit of the children of Israel as they were for Moses. So, however, you can imagine the concern that Pharaoh may have had when the biggest threat to order in his world, right, was controlled by a former member of the royal family who happens to be a Hebrew slave's child, a people who have been abusing and that he's been abusing and exterminating for 40 years. And this dude shows up in his court, and he has power over what that guy considers chaos and then starts to unleash it on his people. I mean, what a message that's going to be, kind of giving you a little bit of heads up. It's better than Charlton Heston, I promise. So, so for Pharaoh... The sign was also symbolic in his inability, right? Conversely, right? It's his inability to control Moses and the children of Israel. That's ultimately the message God's going to be sending Pharaoh through this sign. Is, hey, look, this is your God of chaos. Look who's in control of it, this dude Moses. That's why he told earlier, he told Moses, you will be a 
small g, you will be a god to Pharaoh because he's going to control the chaos. He's going to control the chaos. Point three. And by the way, that's a picture of what's coming in the coming tribulation when the two witnesses show up, just for you Bible students. So God embeds a message to Satan in the sign gift as well. There's a message here, not just to Moses, and not that will only be used with Pharaoh, who's a type of Antichrist, but literally there's something here that Satan needs to see because Satan knows what God's called him. And I'm sure he's, he's looking in on what's going on down there in Horeb. Why is, why is the Lord appearing to this guy Moses? Satan uh, would not have missed the message God is sending to him through his servant Moses. He understood Genesis 3.1. Satan understood that God called him a serpent and prophesied that one day he would be uh, the largest worm rolling over and over in the lake of fire. In Genesis 3.14-15, the Bible says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Be thou, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and the dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. One of the reasons we celebrate Christmas, the first advent of Christ, is that it is the fulfillment of Jesus Christ coming to this earth and fulfilling that portion of the prophecy. He is at enmity. He is at war with God, and God was made flesh and dwelt among us. We know how. That's why it's such a big deal that Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago. But rather Moses knew it or not, as he grabbed that old serpent by the tail, he was picturing for Satan his ultimate demise before God and the, and the God of the Bible, as it had been prophesied in Genesis 49, uh, verses 8 through 10. And I alluded to this passage a few weeks ago, but I'm going to touch on it one more time. In Genesis 49, as prophecy came to Judah, it's at the end of Genesis, and he, Jesus, or God's going through all the, the uh, who Jesus is God, so they're, God's going through all of the the, the uh, 12 sons of Jacob and given prophecies on every one of them. Let's check out Dan sometime too when you're looking at that list. But in Genesis 49 and verse 8, he talks about Judah. He says, Judah, uh, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. And by the way, if you look at Judah's life in Genesis, there ain't a lot to praise right there. It's pretty messed up. He says, uh, your brother are going to praise you. Thy, thy hand shall be, thy hand, thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp uh, from the prey, my son. Thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? Then he says in verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. So Moses is taking the serpent by the tail, not the neck, by the way, as this prophecy is talking about, and that will be reserved for Shiloh, the prince of peace, the prophesied Messiah. Someday there will be a lawgiver, though. Who do you think that lawgiver might be? Well, obviously the law came from God to Moses. The lawgiver is God. But he gives it to Moses on Mount Sinai. After he delivers the children of Israel, there's a guy who has the law. His name is Moses. He's a lawgiver. And while that lawgiver, is the, he stewards the law. That's what the, Ark, the covenant's about. The law's in there, of course, and, and the manna. And, and, and so that law is being stewarded. There's, and a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. Now, of course, that's also Jesus Christ is the lawgiver. Until Shiloh come, which is peace, and unto him shall the, the gathering of the people be. You see, Moses was taking the serpent by the tail, 
And uh, Moses does represent, uh, as things unfold in Egypt, uh, as I've already mentioned, this law that will eventually establish a kingdom for the children of Israel and a prince, and eventually the prince of peace. There will be a scepter, right? A king has a scepter. What's a scepter look like, by the way? It looks like a rod. Got the little ball usually on the end, right? Picturing the world, and it's in his hand. There's a lawgiver. And then there's, a, there's Shiloh who's going to come, and he's going to have control of this kingdom. He's going to have a scepter, a rod in his hand. Interesting. And so um, Satan, of course, at this time is the prince and the power of the air. And so as he sees what's going on down here with Moses, Moses is taking a serpent and he's grabbing it. And that serpent immediately stiffens up and becomes a rod in Moses' hand. That lawgiver someday is going to come forth with a, through, through, through uh, <clears throat> the tribe of Judah. That law is going to produce, all those prophecies about the Messiah are going to come to pass. And there's going to be a man named Jesus born. And it's going to look like, man, he's just some humble dude. And right off the bat in his public ministry, Satan goes after him. Satan tries to stop him. Satan, even though he literally dies, cannot stop Jesus. Why? Because he is the Prince of Peace. Right? He is the one that will eventually crush satan he's going to fulfill that prophecy of genesis he's going to fulfill that prophecy of of genesis both chapter 3 and uh, chapter 49 he's going to take him by the neck he's going to put satan down so you can imagine there's a lot going on here and i'm not i don't want to pretend to know what satan's thinking i don't even want to go there but there's definitely a there's there's a new sheriff coming to town with uh, Moses coming on the scene and getting right in the middle of Pharaoh's business and demanding his people leave. That's why there's such an opposition to it. The fun for Moses isn't over yet. He has taught Moses about how he can use what's in his hand in Exodus 4, uh, 6, and he wants to talk to Moses about what's in his, um, <clears throat> what's on his hand, right? So that's the second point. God equips the called with what is in our hand, but he also, God equips the called with what is on our hand. This is interesting as well. In verse 6, so God just keeps going. Like he could have stopped there. Like you're like, I wish you'd stop there, but I got to keep going. Exodus 4, 6, the Bible says, And the Lord said furthermore unto him, Put now thine hand into thy bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took, out, took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. And he said, Put thine hand into thy bosom again. And he put his hand into his bosom again and plucked it out of his bosom. And, in, and behold, it was turned again as his other flesh. And it shall come to pass... If they will not believe thee, neither hearken to the voice of the first sign, that they will believe the voice of the latter sign. So here's your point. God reveals his contingency plan for unbelief in Exodus 4, 6 through 8. He's like, oh, and just in case they... I've told you in verse 18 in chapter 3, they will believe. But just in case they don't, Moses, just so you know, i got a backup plan. Now I want you to see it. Stick your hand in your bosom and then pull it out. And he's like, ah, okay, uh, which would have been terrifying. Oh, put it back in. You're fine. You're fine. Okay, it's it's restored again. What in the world's all that about? Well, it's his contingency plan for one. But remember, this is not a discussion about Pharaoh's belief at this point. The they that's being talked about is the children of Israel. They will not want to endure the consequences of unbelief that were typified through the leprous condition of the skin. And throughout Scripture and history, leprosy. Has has been was a horrible and is a horrible disease that caused a great deal of pain, isolation, and death uh, to those that ended up uh, contracting it. 
to have leprosy was one of the worst things that, that one could experience. Uh, if not nothing else, it was for the isolation, right? Because you had to be separated into a leper colony. And you would be alone as your body literally decayed. Of course, in the Bible, leprosy is a type of what? Sin, right? In most <clears throat> ancient cultures, leprosy was considered a divine judgment by God. I did not really know that until I was studying this. So to this day, the Hindus believe this. Though they don't, they <clears throat> don't see Jesus as God, uh, but a God, they understand that leprosy is a judgment. Leprosy is synonymous with sin throughout the Scripture in this type, and it's no accident that it is a blood-borne illness as the reason uh, <clears throat> is sin of Adam is ultimately contaminated our blood and our flesh. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that flesh and blood shall not uh, enter the kingdom of God, right? The spiritual kingdom of God cannot be inhabited by our flesh and our blood. That's why we've got to have a new body, right? We get a, we're new creatures in Christ. It doesn't appear what we shall be, but we will be changed. But our, our flesh and our blood aren't going to make it, right? We've got to have a new body. And we've got to be changed. So Paul uh, mentions that before revealing the mystery of the rapture, interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians 15, 40. Now, I say into, to, uh, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth incorruption inherit incorruption. And then he goes on to reveal that we, how we will be changed, and, things, and then we will be caught up with him in an instant in the twinkling of an eye. So point B, leprosy was used by the Lord to reveal his authority on several occasions in Scripture. In Numbers 12, the Lord uh, utilizes the same sign as chastisement upon Miriam uh, and Aaron because they were not happy with Moses marrying the Ethiopian, and they used that ex- excuse to try to overthrow him. And so um, they felt that that disqualified Moses because they were jealous uh, of his liberty and decided that they could use that to, to speak up against him and say, you know, God doesn't just speak through Moses. He can speak through us. So God appears to them in the pillar uh, in the cloud and and he spoke directly to them of their rebellion and his relationship with Moses. And then, of course, he turned Miriam uh, into a leper. And he told them that he was going to, to work uh, through Moses and speak to him very directly. And if they didn't like it, too bad. And then upon departing, Miriam became leprous, and Aaron immediately confessed their sin to Moses. And Moses, as gracious as he was and loving, uh, his, the little brother went to the Lord and interceded in prayer, right? as a, Sort of like Joseph. He says, oh, Lord... You know, be gracious. So what they did is they set her outside the camp for seven days to see if God would heal her. And, of course, he did, and God was merciful to them, and they went forward. So there's a lot in that account, but the short lesson is that God used leprosy to get their attention and to judge them. And so the New Testament, when we reap what we, it tells us we reap what we sow, the works of the flesh are manifest, right, which are these, you know, uh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We see leprosy all over our culture today. We see it in our own lives. I just literally, um, man, we have people, uh, this week I've talked to two separate people connected to our congregation that have dealt with murder relatives being murdered. I won't say the specifics. Uh, I'm like, man, that is horrible. What is that a result of? That's the leprosy. That's the sin of our culture. Man, it's a terrible thing. First Corinthians 5, 9 says, I wrote unto you in the epistle, not to company with fornicators, uh, nor yet altogether with uh, fornicators of the world, or with covetous or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. He's saying, 
I know you got to go to work. I know you got to deal with everybody at work. I'm not talking about that. He says, but, but now I write unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. Right, not just a fornicator, just keep going. Drunkard, extortioner, with such a one, know not to eat. Man, that does not sit well in the American church. Are you kidding me? Right, we are a hospital for sick people. We meet people where they're at. But there is an expectation that when you meet Jesus, right, he ends up changing your life from the inside out. And so you should not continue in sin that grace may abound, Paul said. God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein. There comes a time where you say, look, you are not welcome if you're going to continue in sin. Why? Because you're not going to infect everybody else like Miriam and her sin. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. We use that with marriage, which is a great passage to, to encourage young people not to be unequally yoked or anybody in marriage. But it's not just dealing with marriage. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion hath light with darkness? <clears throat> Now, Paul's made it clear, you've got to live in this world, but you can't be of this world. There needs to be a distinction. It needs to be the difference between light and darkness. And what concord, right? What agreement hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Right? Belial's the devil, or an infidel's a lost person. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, and God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore? Come out from among them and be ye separate. It doesn't say be ye Baptist. It says be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. There is a real reality to our fellowship individually and collectively when we just dismiss sin. And we just allow sin to reign in our lives and the lives of the church body. That's why we have to do church discipline. You have to do that because it keeps everybody clean. While we should... Uh, certainly be very open to meeting people where they are at so so we can share the gospel. And I'm all about that, by the way. We also must balance that uh, by being a, you know, being a friend of sinners with the exceptions. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry. We also must balance being a friend of sinners uh, with the exceptions of the family of God. Right? When it comes to the family of God, uh, we got to deal with our own sin. We have to. Once we're saved, there is a transformation of life that should be occurring that changes our heart and our mind and our actions as we learn more and more of Jesus. So I'm just saying. That's what that leprosy represents. You know what? Moses didn't want it on his hand. God doesn't want it in his church. But ultimately, when it came right down to judging sin, where did it go? How did he judge sin? Good question. He put it on Jesus Christ, his right hand so that we could be made whole. Beloved, all of our sin has been put on his hand. It's been put on Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. God is so good and gracious to us. We shouldn't take advantage of that. We shouldn't just minimize that and say, oh, praise the Lord, I can do whatever I want. You can. Remember the rod illustration? But (laughs) don't. Because, man, we love God. Point C, this sign is also a shadow that will point to the coming Antichrist. Once again, I, I can't help but mention this. Moses is a shepherd and a, and a good shepherd at that. And we know that he was used to draw the children of Israel out of bondage, as I've already mentioned. So there will be a man of sin who will rise, and he will be a miserable shepherd. 
He will draw the children of Israel back into idolatry and blasphemy. And one of the things that is mentioned about this man of sin is that his hand is withered. In Zechariah chapter 11, the Bible says this. I didn't know this, actually. I was just happened to study this out, and so this is new to me. As maybe I should have known this, but I'm like, wow, this is cool. I didn't see this before. For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land, which shall not visit those that, sh- that be cut off, neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that which is broken, nor feed that, uh, uh, that standeth still, right, the, the, the sheep that need help. He's not interested in them. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear the calves in pieces. We were just in the children's class, and Pat was doing a great job teaching about this very thing. The shepherd, which was Saul, he's like, I'm gonna, I want the fattest, right? We, we're supposed to execute everything. I, I kept the fat for me, right? I'm going to serve it. I'm going to give it to the Lord. Yeah, right, Saul, you're a type of the Antichrist. Woe to the, to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. Notice this, his arm shall be clean, dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. His arm will be clean, dried up. You know, Jesus Christ is the right hand of the Father, right? He's the right hand of God. There's a coming Antichrist, he's not going to make it. He's going to be dried up. He's really going to be dried up because he's going to be cast in a lake of fire. This prophecy doesn't describe the Antichrist with leprosy, but it does mention his arm being dried up, which is the symptom, by the way, of leprosy. Dry, dead, decaying flesh as one skin and ultimately their own, their members just waste away. One of the greatest types of Antichrist in, in previous generations, many of them have had portraits. It's interesting. They all have portraits and their hand is stuck in their coat. I don't know if, I wonder if Hitler did that. I don't know, but I know Napoleon did it. You can go back and look at them. They all got that, uh, you know, that's one of those Masonic deals. You stick your hand in your coat and you take your portrait so everybody knows that you're with the order. And so those dudes, they've all got their hand. They need to be careful who they're identifying with. I'm just saying, because uh, that hand's going to wither. It's interesting how God, I think, I do think in some of those secret societies, they actually identify that, that symbol with Moses. That's ironic. I mean, that's the worst symbol. You're not going to see me running around my hand in my shirt like that. That's crazy. I'm doing it as an illustration purpose, by the way. <clears throat> but I digress. So Jesus is the good shepherd, and he gave his life for the sheep. Jesus healed physical leprosy in public ministry as a sign to Israel that, that, that he was their Messiah. Jesus healed all humanity of Adam's sin by becoming sin for us and sacrificing himself on the cross for our sins. So we are free from the penalty of sin and death because we follow the good shepherd out of the bondage of Egypt. And praise God for Jesus, the right hand of God, who was made sin for us. Why? So that we could be made free. Hallelujah. Amen. I'm thankful for that. So God equips the called, right? He does that by <clears throat> with what is in our hand when we give it to him. He also equips the called by taking what's on our hand and revealing and dealing with our sin through his right hand, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, God equips the called with what comes from our hand. The last verse here, and we're going to be done. God, God uh, takes this passage in verse 9. He says, and it shall come to pass. One more time, Moses, just in case that doesn't work. If they will not believe also these two signs, neither hearken unto thy voice, that thou shalt uh, take water of the river and pour it upon the dry ground or land, and the water which ta- uh, thou takest out of the river shall become blood upon 
the dry land. So point A, God makes it clear that he has a backup plan for Israel's disbelief. He has a backup plan for Israel's disbelief. Now God uses the principles of three witnesses to establish his authority uh, in, in I'm sorry to establish the authority of his minister Moses. In uh, 2 Corinthians 13:1, Paul mentions this very principle. He says, "This is the third time I'm coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established." Now Paul understood because he was a doctor of the law, a lawyer. Uh, he understood that he was building on the principle of Deuteronomy 17 and verse 6 in the Old Testament, a sobering consideration, right, that uh, was in, instituted by God. That when somebody was uh, uh, accused of a capital crime, it could not be convicted. A man or woman could not be convicted of a capital offense if there was not at least two to three witnesses. Paul comes to the Corinthians and says, Hey, I'm bringing two to three witnesses. Let every word be established. It's like a court of law. Fortunately for Israel, they followed Moses, and God uh, freed them from the bondage of Pharaoh. They really didn't have to go through this progression, though God used some of these uh, on display for Israel or for Pharaoh. But what's interesting here is is point B. We see the progression of what God will do from the hand of his servant Moses. You see, first Moses took what was in his hand, the authority that he had used to control the, the serpent. Of course, before that, he was controlling the sheep. Second, God showed Moses that he had, he had power to control the flesh on his hand through the sign of leprosy. And third, God spoke to Moses about the sign that he didn't experience uh, in that very moment like he did the previous two. Right? He saw right in front of him what God was going to do. Throw down your, your, your rod, it turns into a serpent. Bam! The first sign, I mean, he saw it. Second sign, Moses was right there. Boom, boom. Oh, wow. So he sees these signs. He's a Jew himself. He's convinced. You got me. And then God speaks this third sign to him. He doesn't say, take a cup of water and go pour it on the ground and watch it turn into blood. He just, he just tells him about it. I thought, well, why is that? And God says, well, I'm glad you're asking questions. So the third, this third one, God says, hey, listen, uh, I've told you about what's in your hand, and I've talked to you about what's on your hand. Now I want to talk to you about, <clears throat> about this thing that's, that's in your hand uh, that you need to pour out. The water turns to blood as it's poured upon the earth. Consider how this typifies Jesus' manifestation to the nation of Israel. First, he comes and addresses the serpent in Genesis. He continues to give him prophecies throughout human history, through Moses, through the law, letting him know uh, his end will come and that he will allow his demise and control to be at the hand of a man. And that man is the one he prophesied in Genesis 3. Of course, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that's, that goes all the way back to the beginning that tells him, uh, he's gonna bruise your, it's gonna, you're gonna, your head's going to be bruised and his heel's going to be bruised. He's going to crush your head. But in the meantime, he gives a, law, a lawgiver named Moses, and he can take that serpent by the tail. And then he prophesies all this information leading to the day when his head will be crushed. That head will be crushed by Jesus. Second, Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, which I'm referring to, by humbling himself and being born of a woman. At his incarnation, he will, be, he will celebrate, in a, <clears throat> that we'll celebrate here in a couple weeks at Christmas, uh, he did the impossible. God of glory and eternity became flesh and dwelled among us. In fact, upon the cross, <clears throat> um, though he never sinned, he was all God, he was all man, but yet God hid his face from him as he became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How long did that last? For three hours on the cross. He hid him. He turned him to sin, and then he healed him, right? It was finished. And he went to the center of the earth and preached to the captivities, and let captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. After that, he was finished. It was finished, and he described, and he descended, I'm sorry, victoriously to the center of the earth, as I just said, and he delivered captivity captive. John chapter 17 and verse 5 says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. In John chapter 17, as he is praying, he's like, Oh God, I cannot wait to get back where I started. I've had enough time in these human carcasses, man. I'm ready to get out of here and get back to the glory that I had before. And of course, that's what happened at the resurrection. So hold on now, because not all Israel believed. You would think that after the death, the burial, the resurrection of their Messiah, he gives them even more grace. And he says, hey, apostles, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, and tell my people right, that I am alive, I'm resurrected. Give them sign gifts so that they will receive the, the, the message. Show them. Hey, wait, but wait. Wait till, Acts, wait till Acts 2. Wait till Pentecost when the Holy Ghost comes. Right? I've already prayed. He'll teach you all things. And then go forth in my power. And of course, what we know what happened, right? In Jerusalem, the Jews said, yes, Jesus is our Messiah. Come back, Lord, quickly. And then he went to Judea and they said, yes, Jesus, we love you. We can't believe we crucified you. And then he went to Samaria and, the, and those, uh, those half-bred uh, Samaritans said, oh, man, we made a mistake. We should have been re- worshiping in Jerusalem all along. Oh, Jesus, come back and rule and reign in Jerusalem. We are ready to receive you. And let's all go to the uttermost parts of the earth and let's tell all of our friends in every synagogue and every Gentile king that Jesus Christ has come and the Messiah has come and if they don't repent, he will judge them of their sin. Is that what happened? No, not at all. He was rejected in Jerusalem. Again, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And he says, fine, Paul, go on out to those Gentiles. Preach the kingdom of God. I'm going to put these guys on hold because I got one more sign and they haven't seen it yet. I've shed, I've shed my blood What else can I do? Nothing. Still to this day, Israel is blinded in part. And many will be damned, but some will be saved in the coming tribulation after this dispensation of grace is closed. All of us that are saved, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. We're a new creature. Why? Because we understand the blood of Christ was shed for our sin. He became sin for us who knew no sin. And he killed that serpent's influence over us. And we are free. We are sons of God. Yet there's promises that he's still got to keep to the nation of Israel. His disobedient children. I mean, they didn't receive the prophets. They didn't receive their own Messiah. So Moses is going to have to come back as a witness in the, in the tribulation. And fulfill this third sign. You say, oh, you're going too far. No, if I didn't have a document, I wouldn't tell you. Look at Revelation chapter 11 and verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses. And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before God of the earth. 
And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must be put, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. <clears throat> Colon. <clears throat> Excuse me. And have power over the waters to turn them to blood. And smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Beloved, there's coming a day to this planet when all the people who have disbelieved, including the Jews and the Gentiles, will see people show up with power to turn water into blood and bring judgment at their discretion. Chaos in a time of chaos. Those that people will receive the one true God, the God of order. The one true God is the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, God saw well beyond the exodus under Pharaoh, and he prepared so mightily that he cast a shadow for the next 4,000 years of time. And yet here we sit, quickly seeing an approach. Why? Because we have his words. You say, well, man, Brian, I don't know what to do. I can tell you what to do right now. Let me, let me make this very simple. What is in our hand? Throughout generations, beloved, the church has not had a Bible like this in their hand. It's been a blessing for the last 200 years of people with the Bible in their hand. We put Bibles together for a reason. There is so much power in the words of God. I can't, I can't express it adequately. God has given us the power of his word. But it's not enough to hold it in our hand, is it? We got to do something with it. We got to cast it out and we got to get the seed in the ground, the hearts of people while there's time because they got to receive the gospel. Because today is the day of salvation. I don't want anybody in disbelief having to deal with what's coming in Revelation that I just read in chapter, in chapter 11. I don't want people seeing that. I want them to receive their Messiah today. And beloved, we got to take what's in our hand. I don't care if you're a carpenter. I don't care if you're a, a, a trash collector. Use what's in your hand. Give it to the Lord. Let him use your life. Get involved in ministry. Let him maximize the impact. And don't say, well, I'm not able to do this. I'm not able to do that. No, God has equipped you. He will take you where he needs you to go. And he will get you where you need to go for his glory. Beloved, it is time to get the gospel where it needs to go on time. Because God equips the called. What is in your hand this morning? Are you willing to cast it upon the ground and give it to God for his use? God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth so we could be freed from the power of sin and death. He gave his son so that we can, <clears throat> so that we can give him our time, our talent, and our treasure and trust him to do more with it than we could ask or think. And you know what I'm so excited about? Many of you are doing that. Man, hallelujah. You are investing in eternity. So what is in your hand this morning? Not your mortal flesh. Not that. The scripture. The promises of God. Are you willing to allow God to use those, not just in your hand, but in your heart like Moses? We've got to have humble hearts so that God can accomplish his mission in his power for his glory. Lastly, you know, have you been washed in the blood? Are you born again? It's no accident at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 1, Guess what? Jesus Christ sits down on a throne, and you know what? Water flows out of him. He's a river of living water. Flows out of his throne forever and ever and ever. Have you been washed in the blood, the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? 
man. His blood is in judgment on us. It's our cleansing. Hallelujah. Why? Because we believed his word. This, this lesson's about believing, isn't it? We've got to believe what he says. Moses needed to believe what he said. I need to believe what he says. You need to believe what he says. Are you in his hand? And is he able to deploy you the way he wants to? That's between you and him.